Welcome to the Feed Weekly, where we take a fresh look at New Zealand's most important food stories. Proudly brought to you by AUT, Plant and Food and Beef and Lamb New Zealand. Don't forget to join us at thefeed.co.nz and now for a bite. Sheila Mooney is Associate Professor and Research Lead at the School of Hospitality and Tourism, Auckland University of Technology in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Her research has most recently been focused on diversity, barriers to equitable employment and gender imbalance in tourism and hospitality. Sheila collaborates with others in Australia, the United Kingdom and Scotland who also advocate for decent work in tourism. We interviewed Sheila on her research and what the imperatives are for industry to change given the current tourism and hospitality workforce shortage. So one of the things that I'm really curious to start off with is to know what led you into researching this subject. Uh, Was it observation, was it experience, or was it a little bit of both that you felt there was something to unpack or discover here? Um, It's a little bit of both. My prior career before coming to work in academia was as a hotel manager. And I did my degree in hotel management in Ireland very many years ago. And then I worked all over Europe. And by the time I reached the position of a senior executive, I realised I was the only woman around. Um, And it's really quite interesting when you're in an organisation and everything is normal. um, You don't really question what is happening. For you, it just seems normal. And I was certainly unaware of any sort of uh, barriers that women might face. Um, I thought if I got on, uh, other women could get on, which, of course, is a common fallacy of successful women. And it was only when I went to AUT, when I moved back to New Zealand with my husband, who's a Kiwi, that um, I suddenly looked at all these organisational processes and I thought, they really don't help women to advance at all. And that's what led to my lifelong passion, actually, for critical management studies, which basically is looking for what we see as the norm and is it and who does it privilege and who does it penalise? You mentioned that that one of the common fallacies of successful women is that if you can do it, that other people uh, can also do it. Um, Reflecting on your time in that space, are there particular things that that you feel enabled you to to be more successful? Oh, that's an interesting question. We might be developing into uh, psychological uh, territory here. Um, I guess I always had a lot of drive and I worked uh, extremely hard. I think many women that I interviewed that um, when I asked what was the secrets of their success, they cited that as well. They worked extremely hard. And there's always a modicum of luck. I was quite lucky at the time in London, where I had most of my executive positions, that I seemed to be surrounded by a lot of Irish uh, seniors. And I would say that um, that opened doors for me. It wasn't quite nepotism. Um, But I would also say that I was very hungry for success. And I never took anything for granted. So I was constantly striving to do better. Um, And other women report that as well, which is why for women in senior executive positions, it's more tiring than for men. There's something called the Teflon effect, which we can talk about um, now or later if it interests you. Yeah, I'm absolutely interested to to know and understand. Okay. Um, 
the Teflon effect is a phrase coined by um, Simpson and Kumra when they were discussing why men got on in organizations and women didn't get on so well. So what they um, conceptualized was that if, if you were a man and you came to work in an organization and you were good and you worked your way through the ranks and you became known, the assumption is that you will continue to perform at the level that is anticipated. But nobody checks up on it. Whereas a woman is only as good as her last decision. And every time uh, there is a position where a decision has to be made, it's more visible than if a man makes that decision. So the decisions are queried more. And as a result, it is more stressful for any woman to actually maintain that visibility and that success level. And it's often why women are put into um, what they call glass cliff positions, like when the banks failed in Iceland all those years ago, they appointed women to lead them out of trouble. But when things get less troublesome and it's less dire that the women's skills are needed, um, then they're scrutinized much more closely. And that's the Teflon effect. Merit doesn't stick to women in the same way as men. Isn't it just infuriating to take something that anecdotally, I think a lot of women in in many industries, but a lot of women would report that as an anecdotal experience. And then you hear data that supports it and actually says, no, this isn't just an anecdotal story, but it's actually a very real thing that is happening and it has a name now and this is a pattern of behavior. It's it's so infuriating to hear yeah. it. Um why is it important to address that kind of imbalance? You know, and in particularly in what I would call a critical industry, you know, like hospitality, like tourism, like those on flow effects. Why is it critical to address the imbalance? Um, it's more critically urgent now, I believe, than at any previous point in our history. And that might sound dramatic. However, for women worldwide, we have had an extreme, extremely confronting and serious moment with the repeal of the legislation um, that protected women's rights to an abortion for health reasons. And certainly anyone who has analysed, as I have, any specific field over the last 20 years, um, all the gains that we imagined would happen um, as the world grew more modern, there was stronger legislation to protect women's um, equal rights in the workplace. That seems to be eroded. Mm. People discuss the neoliberal values that permeate most Western societies where economic good is the, the desired goal. And the neoliberal um, perspective is that really, if you want a career, anybody can have it. You're responsible for your own success. Um, and if you don't get on, well, maybe you haven't performed as you should. Maybe you haven't you know, got the teeth whitening. Because previously as well, looks were something you were born with. Now, the teeth don't look good, or you're not smart, or you're not fit. Well, actually, you've not done the job properly. So when one takes step further into what we are now calling neoliberal feminism, you've got um, public icons like Kim Kardashian, 
who says, do what I do, be like me, and you're going to be really, really successful. And once again, if you're not, it's, well, you know, anybody can look what I've done. Um, anybody can do it. What does it look like in practical example? Um, if you can, you know, speak from speak from your work. Uh, it's very confronting when it's laid out like that. Um, and it's easy to see because we see it in examples of, say, social media personalities or in the broad spectrum. Um, but when it comes down to what it might look like within a particular industry or what it might look like on a more micro level, what are the sorts of things that that you've seen or unpacked? Do you have any examples that immediately spring to mind? Oh, I have very many examples. Um, my first real study was with a large uh, hotel company, which wished to analyse why there weren't more women at the top in Australia and New Zealand. And it was a very large company with very many different types of properties. And... Um, Acker, who is in many respects um, the founder of most of our critical perspectives on how women succeed or don't succeed, um, put various categories of um, ways in which one group is privileged over another. And this is in terms of how work is arranged, um, hiring procedures and promotional procedures. And when I asked for volunteers for the survey I got over 600 qualitative survey people and that was about 50% of the actual sample um, that's who could have um, Mm. taken part and then I had follow-up interviews with um, 20 women 19 or 20 women and it could have been 50 all over Australia and New Zealand and there was a common thread the way that work was organized and still is in hospitality is very much presenteeism and um, you're expected to be there and you're expected to be flexible to the needs of the business. And when I spoke to you earlier about um, not realising how some sort of policies or ways of analysing a person's performance didn't privilege women, flexibility to business demands means that, oh, if you're in an airport to tell you've got a delayed flight and they call you, you're the food and beverage executive, that you can drop everything and be there. And, you know, that isn't possible if you've got childcare that's open from eight o'clock to six. So how work is arranged doesn't facilitate the parents with caregiving commit, commitment, for example. Secondly, um, hiring procedures. If there was a man and if there was a woman and they both had the same qualifications, I had HR directors who said to me, I've had general managers turn around to me and say, well, you know, if I hire the bloke, I'm going to get more bang for my back because, mm. you know, he's not going to go off and have babies. And and in fact, and that continues to the current days where a massive uh, gen tour project in Portugal looked at the barriers that women in tourism faced and they were regarded as less flexible as men. If there was an interview for a sales position, they would be asked, well, you know, you've got children, if there were women. Um, how are you going to manage your sales trips away at the weekend? Where's men, you know? Well, it didn't matter because after all, they've got wives. And that's, you know, we're talking about a study that was published in, what, 2017, 2018? Mm-hmm. And 
The third one then was the promotional aspect. So in hospitality, which is a very social uh, occupation, and there's a lot of socialising off the job. Men tended to share around invitations they got to, you know, the uh, rugby at Eden Park, or, you know, they'd go golfing together. And golf is a great opportunity, even all these years later, where junior men can, you know, be friendly with senior men. But certainly in the late night drinking where someone wouldn't feel comfortable. I mean, I was Irish. Maybe that was another hidden advantage. They weren't privy to the conversations that showed that, interview, that opportunities were coming up to um, get experience, which meant that you get promotion. So, for example, the front office uh, manager is going away. Oh, we need somebody to cover it. There's nobody um, one girl said that she was there almost by accident. She kind of barged herself in and she said, oh, look, I can do that. It's a month till he goes. I can train uh, one day a week, my day off. And she took the position that led to a promotion. So it's availing of the opportunities or a hearing of the opportunities. And being taken under an influential mentor's wing were barriers that women faced that appeared to be more than men. Mm-hmm. Are there other factors as to why you believe so firmly that it's time critical now to really uh, to highlight and elevate the issue and to take constructive action? Well, if you look at the facts, you open up any newspaper, you listen to Radio New Zealand, you look anywhere, and there is a desperate shortage of employees. And it is quite interesting that once again, the industry is calling for, you know, uh, migrant visa, um, what should we call them, regulations to be relaxed. And what happens, of course, then is that we have locals who don't want to do the job. And if you're excluding 50% of the local available workforce because they don't quite fit your profile of a flexible worker or because people themselves look at that job needs that, do I really think I can you know, do well in that sort of environment? Then you've got, um, you're, you've got less people that you can recruit to your workforce. And it is very clear that tourism, which was our number one export before COVID, is absolutely vital, particularly to many of our marginal um, rural areas and less populated areas which need tourism to survive and need tourism to give opportunities and to reduce, hopefully over time, our dependency on seasonal employment. So. All of those in the New Zealand context add up to a absolutely imperative need to make the industry more attractive. And mm. you're only going to make the industry more attractive if you provide very clear career paths. Um, one really unfortunate thing about hospitality and tourism that I must say is that the bad stories you hear are not representative of the really, really, really good employers that mm. we have in New Zealand. In talks with the uh, Labour Inspectorate and um, representatives of MBIE who came in to talk to our industry groups, 
they would say it's the little fly-by-night operators. You know, they'll say, right, we're targeting the North Shore now. And they'll go into all these tiny little cafes at the middle of nowhere. And, you know, they'll be shown a set of books, which have people's wages and everything. And then the next day, they'll be shown another set of perfect books because the, the world will have got around. So the bad employers do a real disservice to our excellent, excellent employers like Mimi Gilmore from Burger Burger, um, you know, mm-hmm. um, all of all of these people are principled employers who have had a great career, as I did, and wish to make that accessible to others. Mm. This perhaps a more philosophical question, but I think it's always interesting to ask, particularly in a field where your work has been, you know, driven by research to create, you know, facts to to stand these principles upon. Um, but I'm curious to know what do you think we lose if we if we don't address the imbalance of men to women in hospitality workplaces? You know, what's the cost that we count that perhaps we can't see in the short term, but long term has an impact? That's that's an interesting question because a lot of the barriers that are privileges or penalties that I research are ones that you don't immediately discern. It's mm. only by, as you say, analysing the micro practices in one organisation that the the unseen um, factors spring to the surface. What do we lose? We lose um, in two ways. We lose the consumer loses the opportunity to have diverse needs accommodated. And I'll give you a tangible example from an anecdote from somebody in the industry. And the workforce loses because if they put in the same effort as somebody else and don't get the rewards, the research shows very clearly, Adam's equity theory, it may be an old theory, is that they will reduce their effort or they will leave to where their efforts are more appreciated. And I think we might have seen a lot of that happening to furlong employees who never returned to hospitality. Um, so the thing I wanted to share was years ago when I worked for Intercontinental and they were designing new hotel rooms for um, clients, they went into each uh, bathroom. They had a specialist who looked to see what the lighting was like for applying makeup, for example. There was always cotton wool, but little things. But it was in the same way as you'd look at um, accessible uh, requirements for a person with disabilities or a businessman's needs for certain things like the shaver. You also looked at businesswomen's requirements. And um, a, a, a previous colleague said to me, do you know, we don't have that now anymore. We we actually." Do not. So when I go into a bathroom now, I feel that we have gone backwards mm. over the last 20 years because now those things that to me were the norm, and I'm a senior female hotel executive with regional responsibilities, I don't get the things that would make my life as an executive more comfortable. Mm. So there is the perception that. You know, we don't have to worry about it anymore. I see it with my younger students and it appalls me because my daughter is 20 years old. And to put it mildly, she's been exposed to a lot of feminist um, conversations over the dinner table. But 
many of the students I, I talked to, they they appear to think that the battle's won, that, that, that we have a level playing field. Um, hmm. But we don't. And I, I, it is our duty, I believe, to prepare young people for the reality that if there are a certain uh, ethnicity, that if there are a certain gender, that if there are a sec- certain sexual orientation, then they true worth mightn't be seen as easily and they should know what both their personal and legal recourses are. Mm. Are there particular barriers that in that ongoing battle uh, are important to address first and foremost? Um, and, and you know, and if so, if there are certain ones that we should really be focused on removing, um, why? Why that one? Why? There, there will always be certain groups that will be uh, privileged over another. And in hospitality, which is so image driven, where your uh, bars for cool, trendy young people research uh, shows that a cool, trendy young bar manager will feel that she's getting a bit too old for the job if she's 29, because it's almost like you age faster than you would in another industry in the eyes mm-hmm. of your patrons. Um, that aside, to my mind, the only way uh, that research shows that we can redress the balance is by having policies that apply to everyone. However, that we also, within those policies, recognise that some groups may need more support than others. But the ideal is that you make those supports available to everybody. What happens sometimes where you have a policy that is seen to benefit just one disadvantaged group such as flexible working hours, possibly. Um, there have been cases in one bank, um, Trustee Savings Bank. It was It's an older study, but I'm not sure that things have changed a lot. But that um, people who availed of the, the opportunity to leave the workplace early, go home and work, pre-COVID times, mind you, mm-hmm. um, they were seen as weak and not quite able to hack it in the rigours of the business. So that's the, f- the first thing you need, the policy. And the second thing is you need to have a champion at the top. Um, if you do not have a champion who will make these um, policies mandatory, then it's not going to work. And number three, you need to tie it to people's bonuses and targets in organisations which have financial rewards tied to um, key indicators or the achievement of key indicators targets. So what you're saying is after all these years, it's still the money that talks and helps action happen. Well, don't we know it is? Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. so, uh, I mean, those are some those are some really good practical examples. Bringing it down to a more personal level, um, say somebody who is, you know, a hospitality manager, they're managing an F and B team in a hotel, and they're listening to this podcast. Um, what would you be encouraging them to do as an individual in their role in their organisation to begin addressing some of those barriers or to begin seeing change, a transformation in their own workplaces? Well, given that we are in a situation in both the housing market and the employment market where the buyer 
in this case, the employee has most of the power. I would say that many young people don't recognize that when they're going for an interview, it's a two-way street. Mm. And they should vet their employers very carefully. And they should, at the interview, in the politest possible way, get an indication of how they are going to fare in that organization if they are going to be um, given the opportunities that they wish. And again, it's a two-way street. The people that, when I was in that position that I was interviewing and that I was really impressed by, were the people who showed that they were motivated, that they had got goals, because then I knew that we could work together to help them achieve their potential. And that's the wonderful thing, actually, about the hospitality industry and education, is that you've got these young people who are filled with passion and joy. And many people, excuse me, join hospitality for that reason. They can have the most wonderful career by actually being very clear about what they want. And as I said, interviewing the employers to find the one who is going to be principled. I'm curious about that. And and I wonder if you might have some insight. Where where do people go? Where are the where are the trustworthy places if you haven't been in the hospitality industry for a long time, but you are considering moving into it, where do you go to find out actually who the good employers are from the from perhaps the the less reputable? Or are there key questions that you would be wanting to ask in an interview to really understand what an employer's perspective is on some of these issues? You ask very good questions. <laughs> uh, in America, there is an organization called Glassdoor <clears throat> where employees um, post comments about their organization. I'm not entirely aware of something like that um, in New Zealand, but New Zealand's a very small country. And people know somebody. I always um, think that large corporate organizations, for example, Hilton and Intercontinental, have excellent structures. And they have done a lot in recent years to redress some of the um, issues. Um, I would say that if they're considering working for any particular hospitality group they should ask around they should google it they they will definitely get information there linkedin is very valuable to ask questions of your network and also in the interview to ask what are your uh, normal practices will i receive a review of my performance in 3 months time um how is the promotion in this organization. You know, I really want to give my most. What can I expect from your organization? Again, very open-ended, non-confrontational questions, but that ask for a specific answer, that ask the organization to, in a way, provide evidence. They should do the same due diligence for any job as they would for any major purchasing purchase that they're making with afterpay is it going to be worth it and they have that power now and they can do that power now there are as i said there are some superb operators in the city um and 
they can find out in New Zealand just what they are like. There are mm. some bad, bad, bad um, employers out there, but you don't have to work for them. Mm. Mm. Who needs to understand? And perhaps you know this is a it's maybe a wish a wish list. Maybe it's a hit list. Um, who would you like to see really understand and take action on on what your field of research has revealed and what it demonstrates about how we as a New Zealand hospitality industry should be, and tourism industry as well, should be considering our rebuild approach? Ah, well, funny you should ask that. Um, one of the strands of research that myself and um, another group of international researchers have invested a great deal of time in over the last two years is what's required to build a sustainable hospitality and tourism workforce. And by sustainable, we mean that you're not going to have this dreadful high turnover that we've had for years, where one pair of legs is replaced by another pair of legs. And actually, you won't bother training them because they're going to leave and go somewhere else. Mm. And people who earn a living wage um, and if they have three or four years of a degree in hospitality, well, then you're going to pay them like a professional graduate as they do in other industries, you know, not just as, oh, you know, I might give you a full time contract rather than I'll pay you by the hour. And that's the perk of being a hospitality management graduate. Um, so we looked into sustain. So it's t- Professor Tom Bam from Strathclyde University, um, Richard Robinson and David Sonlet, Associate Professors of Queensland Universities, and many others. And in every country that these researchers were based, they are facing exactly the same issues with a shortage. It, it is really a crisis, a catastrophe. But um, A sustainable workforce cannot be built by one organisation. There's three parties. You need a thriving economy. And that means strong legislation, living wage for everybody, really. I mean, this is is the norm. Um, Principled, uh, cooperating, educated employers. And you need um, individuals that will receive the rewards and the development and the training that they require to have satisfied lives. So that means that our role as researchers is to in, you know, inform government policy, to carry out research that will show not just the shortcomings, but what's happening that is really, really good. And we need to educate the individuals that we are um, educating for happy lives in hospitality, and if it doesn't give it to them, they can go some other industry. So we need all of those things to ensure a sustainable hospitality industry. And that's going to take time. But I was talking with my colleagues the other night because we've just had a very, very successful um, special issue on sustainable hospitality workforces in the Journal of Sustainable Tourism, and gender featured so hugely in many of the submissions in terms of workers' collectives in Guatemala were far better if the women had control, that that sort of things, very basic things. So, and we were talking about the shortage, and I was saying, like I am to you now, isn't it great, finally, employees 
have a position of power. And one of my colleagues just said to me, Kira, you know, two years' time, it could be exactly like it was before. It's moved off the agenda. You know, migrants can do it again. And I really do believe that decision taken by the government a few years back to halt the flow of migrants pre-COVID to was the desire to shift the equation, if you like, that local employers would work together to find some means to establish secure career paths, mm. that people, locals, would go into the industry. Because if the locals won't go into the industry, what does that tell you about mm. how desirable it is? Mm. And COVID has only really completely um, increased those woes because you have a generation of young people that for three years have had minimal social contact. These would be the children, the young adults now who would have cut their teeth working in the local hospitality establishment, learning to talk to people, enjoying learning to talk to the first work experience and they've not had that it's Mm. and that is only increasing the pressures Mm. that you're showing us you know and anecdotally I always thought it was curious that New Zealanders and Australians but you know New Zealanders would go offshore particularly to the UK and they would pay their way through a working holiday, pulling pints at a local pub. And yet the rarity of walking into a pub in New Zealand in the, you know, in those days and finding a Kiwi behind the bar, pulling a pint, you know, that was, they were two opposite worlds. Uh, And, and I think there's such uh, marry that with almost a mentality amongst some of my uh, peers who are committed to hospitality as a lifelong career, because it is a, uh, it's a work of passion. It's a vocation of choice because they, you know, they can't imagine doing anything else. And they're so talented. That must be, you know, they're so talented. Um, and yet for many of those peers, that choice to work a vocation of passion seems to come coupled with, you know, a commitment to uh, to a working lifestyle that is potentially unsustainable that doesn't necessarily have pathways to great financial development or investment you know um i think you know the fact that uh sit and chand um sarawat's uh decision to to enable one of their uh top chefs to move into ownership of one of their establishments is a great example um it's a great example of how the industry can continue to develop but the fact that it was such a ripple effect of oh my goodness what a what a generous move you know actually it's really difficult to get into um owning your own premise or even being a part owner of a premise and so all of those things that ladder into what does a long-term career look like um is difficult enough for anyone um in the industry let alone anybody who then also faces barriers of gender um or perhaps sexual discrimination you know etc 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 so it is a um fascinating field of research that requires more than fascination but actually um dramatic uh, transformative action to well, really make a difference well actually you've touched um, a nerve then which and this was going to be something that i had intended to address earlier on the interview um the most rewarding study that i've been involved in over the last few years has been a study of the 
um, workplace norms that um, govern Australian kitchens. And that's with two Australian colleagues. And even now, I suppose I'm just um, uh, taken aback by some of the founding, findings that, that we found. It's a very um, masculine uh, typed career in contrast to domestic cookery, which seems to be regarded as, you know, the feminized um, mm. uh, chore. And in the professional space, it metamorphosizes into a male domain. And the barriers that women face in professional kitchens make the barriers faced by women in other occupations in hospitality fade into insignificance. The norms establish, basically, that women don't belong in the kitchen. And if they're wearing a chef's uniform, well, actually, they shouldn't be there. We There was interviews with um, 70 participants from three major cities in Australia. And they were penalised in very clear systemic ways. They were sexually and biologically objectified as either women who were going to have children or as sexual objects. They were penalised economically because they did not have emotional opportunities, development opportunities as their male peers did, regardless of how talented they were compared to their male peers. And they suffered emotional isolation where they were constantly reminded that they weren't part of the boys' gang. And they left in droves. And that's still the situation now. And this was the situation in 1870. It was the situation in 1970, and it's the situation in 2022. So, to me as a researcher, I am boundlessly optimistic in terms of, and persistent in terms of, I will research and I will research and research, and I will show the findings. But at some stage, one has got to wonder. What will is there politically in all these organizations that are supposed to represent their population? Whose views are they representing? T I, I've listened to industry talks where I have heard that the tourism industry um, blueprint going into the future is to pay employees a fair wage. One line in that entire doc, pay a fair wage. And I've asked, what does a fair wage look like? Can you quantify it? Can you qualify it? Oh, well, you know, we leave it up to our members. Mm. And we know what happens when it's been left up to the members. So I would say one of the really big issues with the exception possibly of Marissa Bidwa, who uh, represents um, a very balanced view, 
I would say that our tourism industry um, chiefs maybe need to consider prioritizing the needs of the employee as much as the employer because their employees are their society. They are their customers. They are their future. Mm. And if they do not look after their interests, they will continue to reap the rewards that they're reaping now. Sorry, that sounds very grim. But uh, I wonder how much our institutions have done to represent employee interests. I think that's uh, an outstanding challenge to leave, a challenge and a question uh, to leave the interview on. So thank you so much. Very grateful. Thanks.